0: Jesus and his disciples sailed to the Gerasi's land, which is across the lake from Galilee. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a certain man met him. The man was from the city and was possessed by demons. For a long time, he had lived among the tombs, naked and homeless. When he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down before him. Then he shouted, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had taken possession of him so he would be bound with, iron, with leg irons and chains and placed under guard, but he would break his restraints and the demon would force him into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had entered him. They pleaded with him not to order them to go back into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let him, them go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission, and the demons left the man and entered the pigs. The herd rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. When those who tended the pigs saw what happened, they ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They came to see to Jesus and to found the man from whom the demons had gone. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully dressed and completely sane, They were filled with awe. Those people who had actually seen what had happened told them how the demon-possessed man had been delivered. Then everyone gathered from the region of the Gerasenes, asked Jesus to leave their area because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and returned across the lake. The man from whom the demons had gone begged to come along with Jesus as one of his disciples. Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell the story of what God has done for you. So he went throughout the city proclaiming what Jesus had done for him.
1: My name is Megan, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. I invite you to pray with me as we approach God's word this morning. God, we sang together this morning that you are a lighthouse. and We, we sit together today just in full awareness that there are many storms going on in the world in our community and in our own lives that are in need of that kind of stable light. We pray for people in our country and around the world who are facing literal storms this weekend. Ice and rain and threats to lives and homes. We pray for your mercy. And for the protection and saving of lives. Lord, we pray for our overfull hospitals that are experiencing such a, a storm, for the people sitting in them right now, in fear, asking questions, waiting to be seen. For their loved ones who wish they could be with them and can't, we pray that you would be a light and a safe place in the midst of those storms. And Lord, we pray for ourselves and those sitting next to us this morning in this community, wherever we are experiencing storm. That you would join us in the midst of the twirling and blowing. That there would be a peace at the center that defies all understanding. Because you are the God of peace and storms both. Now speak in your word by the power of your spirit and make your story live for us so that we can live more fully and faithfully for you. Amen. Well, at Trinity, we are in the midst of this journey through the Gospel of Luke, the stories of Jesus, um, and there are two kinds of stories that are most common within the Gospels, within the preserved records of Jesus. Um, one kind of story is the kind we talked about last week, which is healing stories, um, and the other, the second kind of story that is most common are stories of exorcisms. And I know this is the topic that you got out of bed for this morning. Yes. In Luke chapter 4, at the very beginning of Luke chapter 4, Jesus is starting his public ministry and the first thing he does is he shows up at his hometown synagogue and he announces his ministry and what he's come to do. And right after Jesus announces his ministry, famously reading from the prophet Isaiah, uh, the very next thing we hear in Luke is this. After announcing his ministry, Jesus went down to the city of Capernaum in Galilee and he taught the people each Sabbath. They were amazed by his teaching because he delivered his message with authority. A man in the synagogue had the spirit of an unclean demon. He screamed, hey, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One from God. Notice that the, the evil spirit here has presented Jesus with a question. Have you come to destroy us? The answer, the resounding answer that is clearly implicit in, in the story in the Gospel of Luke is, heck yes. I mean, this is the like opening salvo of Jesus' ministry. He has just gotten up in his hometown synagogue and he's told the people that God's spirit is on him to bring good news to the poor Freedom for the captives, sight for the blind, and to liberate the oppressed. Right? That's the mission statement. But how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to accomplish it by destroying evil. So the scene that unfolds right after that announcement, this is really key to Jesus' understanding of his own mission, Jesus is here to establish the kingdom of God. He's here to make the world as God wants the world to be, all whole and right and put together and just. That's what Jesus is here to do. That's what we see in those healing stories, right? Jesus is accomplishing that mission of putting things back together and making them whole. But the thing is that establishing the kingdom of God is not like colonizing Mars, You can't just kind of plant a flag and be like, here it is, because this place is already occupied. Jesus is bringing God's kingdom to a place where another kingdom already exists, and that means there's going to have to be a fight if the new kingdom is coming in. So this is the kind of key to understanding Jesus' entire ministry. God's work for wholeness, God's work to heal the world and put things back together, is taking place in the context of opposing forces whose mission is to divide and destroy things. There there are powers in the world whose only main desire is to burn God's house down with everybody in it. That that is the context in which Jesus' ministry unfolds. So we could have a discussion today, and I really thought about taking this approach. We could all kind of gather and we could talk together about exactly who or what the opposition is, right? Like, what are these evil spirits? What does the New Testament mean by demons, by possession? When Jesus talks about Satan, what are we actually talking about? And we could have that conversation, but chances are we'd all still be confused and just be feeling a little weird, And honestly, I think the metaphysics of this, like that question of like who or what exactly are we talking about is less important than simply learning from the stories in in Luke's gospel of what evil looks like so that we recognize it when we see it in front of us. And this is what I really like about the story we just read in Luke chapter 8. Um, we have a lot of different kinds of stories of evil in the Gospels, but in this story in particular, we really get a portrait of, like, if you were going to encounter evil in the world, what will it actually look like? How do you recognize it? Now, there are a few distinctive details that were given in this story in Luke 8. Um, the first detail is that we have a man who is from the city. That's kind of a weird statement, right? Like the first description of this guy is he's from a city. Why is that important? Well, the city is the place of many people, and this guy has been driven away from people. He's being driven away from the many by the many demons in himself. We're also told that he's living in a graveyard. He's so completely cut off from life that he might as well be dead. We're told that he's naked, um, which is basically saying he's living like an animal. He's barely recognizable as human. He has these kind of scraps of iron cuffs on his arms and his legs uh, because he has often been the prisoner of his neighbors who've chained him up to kind of control him and stop his violence. They've guarded him. But sometimes he breaks loose and he wanders away. But whether he's in the chains or whether he's loose... Either way, he's not better off because he's not free. He's not in control. Chains or not, he's still a prisoner. The, the other thing we're told about uh, this man is Jesus asks his name and the, man, the demon answers for him. He says his name is Legion. This man's name, his voice, his identity has been so completely consumed by the thing destroying him that he's totally identified with the thing that's tearing him apart. Okay, so so let's kind of walk through that again and and say, like, maybe all that sounds kind of strange and ancient and abstract. Let, Let me just describe this again and see if this sounds any more familiar. We have a man who's been driven away from the city, from the many, by a legion of demons, by voices in himself. I mean, leave the demon thing aside for a second and just ask yourself, have you ever felt like your head is full of voices? Fears? Insecurities, resentment, loneliness, envy, unforgiveness, doubt, desire. And you're so preoccupied with those voices. They're taking up so much space in your head that you find yourself drifting farther and farther away from the relationships that support you because you have no energy to devote to those relationships because you're just consumed by this internal battle in yourself. This man is... Living in the tombs. I mean, have you or anyone you know ever experienced a kind of total hopelessness? A a kind of just fear and dread and sadness and despair where life barely seems worth living, where the whole world feels just colored in shades of gray, where everything just feels and tastes like death. This man, he's naked, he's living like an animal. Have you or anyone you, never, you have ever known ever been kind of reduced to your base impulses? Just being driven by hatred or lust or greed or hunger? And until the point where a person doesn't even care like what it's doing to themselves or the people around them, they're just consumed by this kind of core emotion or desire driving them. This man is in chains, Well, we all know people who are prisoners, either prisoners literally of other people or of circumstances, maybe chained because of their violence, maybe chained because of prejudice or injustice. But I I think if we think about it, we all know people, and maybe we've experienced this ourselves, who are free, but not really. Really? We're caught in these these patterns by chains we can't see that drive us to do the same self-destructive thing again and again and again as we watch it kind of rip our lives and our relationships apart. This man has had his name taken away. Have you or ever anyone you know ever become so identified with their addiction? so identified with some past hurt uh, by some worst thing that we've done, that that one thing starts to become all we are. I mean, maybe it's not even a bad thing, but maybe you or someone you know has been reduced to just one thing about themselves. All, all you are anymore is your sexuality or your political allegiance or your status as an achiever. This one thing has consumed everything I sort of suspect that the name we call it is less important than our ability to recognize that evil is close and that it's active. We all encounter it, we've all tasted it, we've all experienced it closer than we might think. I mean, now why is this important to know? Like, why is it important to be able to recognize evil? To, To know it's on the field in the world. Because I think a lot of us would just kind of like, like to skim past this and kind of wish these stories away. Why is it important to know? Well, I think there are two really big reasons. Number one, we need to know that evil is active so we don't get played. I mean, the, the vast majority of people I know who have, have, have ever been taken down by evil didn't even ever realize they were in a battle. Right? We, as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we have the power to resist this stuff, but most of us never see it coming. And that's the problem. I mean, we need to know what the ministry of Jesus has made really clear. God is working in our lives right now directly to draw us toward wholeness and life and purpose, but there are other forces that are looking to drive us precisely away from those things. That There are forces that are actually driving us toward obsession and addiction. That There are voices that are not the voice of God that are driving us toward depression and despair. That there are powers at work in the world that are seeking to kind of shut us down in our own head and drown us in our interior voices. That there are voices that are seeking to kind of press us down and reduce us to what is basest and what is smallest about us. And when that happens, God loses. When we allow that stuff to happen, God loses. We need to know that this is possible so that we don't get played. I mean, the other reason this is really important to know doesn't have to do with us. It has to do with the people around us. Uh, the, The fact that evil is real and present on the field is really important to understand in affecting how we view and treat our neighbors, Notice that the man in Luke 8, he's violent, his neighbors are scared of him, like he's a scary dude, they're locking him up, and he says his name is Legion, but he isn't Legion. He isn't Legion, he is a hostage of Legion, right? This is really important to understand. He says his name is Legion, and his neighbors believe him, but he isn't Legion, he's the hostage, right? Right? Grappling with the reality of evil means moving beyond simple stories of dichotomies between victims and villains. The world just isn't divided that way in the ministry of Jesus. Maybe this guy just embraced evil with his eyes wide open. Maybe he was like, yeah, I want some evil today. Or maybe this thing snuck in when he was hurt when he was tired, when he was wounded, when he wasn't looking. I've been listening recently to this really interesting popular podcast, maybe some of you have been listening to, that tells the story of a Boeing engineer who was one of the most successful bank robbers in U.S. history. He was just released from prison a couple years ago. And you listen to the story and you ask yourself, how does this normal guy who's apparently a good father, he has a good middle-class job, he's living a good life, like how does he end up robbing more than 30 banks? Well, it turns out he had, he had a medical procedure for which he was prescribed heavy drugs, painkillers to recover, and he got addicted. He got some more prescriptions, and then when he couldn't get any more of those, he started buying the painkillers off the street just to be able to keep his job. Right? He was scared. And, and then those painkillers became less available on the street and they became more expensive, so he switched over to heroin because it was cheaper. And, and, and pretty soon, you know, before you know it, you listen to this story begin to unfold, and pretty soon it seems like the logical conclusion is like, I need the drug to survive, I need it to keep my job, and the only way I know how to get the money is to rob a bank, and the next thing you know, he's robbing neighborhood banks with the assistance of his son, and then his son gets caught and ends up in prison. And the story just keeps unfolding, like this is a a true story of kind of watching somebody's life come apart. And you listen to it, and suddenly the world starts to look really complicated, (laughs) because it becomes really hard to parse apart the blame. Like, who is responsible for this transition? Right? Like, whose fault is this as it goes down? Like, this man is clearly making conscious choices along the way about how he's going to handle what's unfolding, and yet he didn't just wake up one day and decide to become a bank robber, right? There are all sorts of intervening steps where other actors are involved that are crucial players along the way to the situation he ends up in. You know, I think when we recognize that every person we know, every person we've ever met is playing out their life choices in the middle of a battlefield where there are players who are actively against them, seeking their destruction, maybe we can begin at least to have a little bit more compassion to the complexities of what our neighbors are up against. Right? Like every person we know is making choices in the midst of this battlefield where bullets are constantly flying. So this is our situation. Evil is real, it's active, it's on the field, it's seeking our destruction, but Luke has some really good news in the midst of that understanding of the kind of world we're living in. The good news is that somebody who has taken the field who is stronger than evil is. Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, if I throw out demons by the power of God, then what does that mean? It means God's kingdom has already overtaken you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his possessions are secure. But as soon as a stronger one attacks and overpowers him, the stronger one takes away the army armor he had trusted and divides the stolen goods." If there is one message that is clear all the way through the Jesus story, it's that evil is thoroughly outmatched. When Jesus issues a command, and you see this over and over in the Gospels, when Jesus says, go, evil comes and collapses at his feet instantly. It's not even really a battle. If you listen to the end of this story, uh, this man who's just been tormented and, and everything has come apart, he ends up clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus like one of his disciples, listening. He, he goes back to the city, the community, he becomes a part of it again, and not only does he regain his name, he gains a whole story of what God has done for him that he gets to go back and tell. I mean, he, he's fully restored by this encounter with Jesus. Jesus. And the claim here, the claim of Jesus' ministry is not just that Jesus has power over evil. It's not just that Jesus has outmatched these forces that are tearing the world apart. But the good news is that Jesus says he has the power to share that authority with every person who follows him. And You hear this in Luke chapter 10. Jesus has sent out his disciples. First, he sends out 12 of them, and then he sends out 72 of them. And he says to them, I'm giving you power to preach the gospel, and to cast out demons. And this is what happens when they come back. The 72 returned joyously, saying, Lord, even the demons submit themselves to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority to crush snakes and scorpions underfoot. I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. You know, last week we were talking about healing and Jesus' power to heal, and we talked about what Jesus makes possible, but we also named that, like, not every case is a case in which full healing happens right now, right? We're all aware of that. It doesn't always come together the way that we wish. But if, if there's one thing that Jesus' followers are promised always, all the time consistently, is they don't ever have to get played by evil, There are zero exceptions to this. If you are a follower of Jesus, you never have to get played. You have the power for resistance in you through the power of Jesus to choose what is right and resist what is evil. That is a consistent promise Jesus gives to his disciples. And beyond that, beyond that guarantee that you have the power to resist evil for yourself, you also are equipped by the Spirit in the name of Jesus to go out and help other people in active resistance. You have power to participate in a work of deliverance that affects everybody else. So what does that look like in practice? Well, let's end by getting really practical here. What does it look like to resist evil for yourself? How do we participate in deliverance work for others? Well, number one, first thing, you got to know the signs, right? You have to know the signs. I said before, most people who are taken hostage by evil never put up a fight because they are taken completely unaware, we have to recognize we are on a battlefield, that there are things working in the world that are intent on our destruction and know what the markers are. I mean, let's go over the markers one more time. Few of them? Evil destroys relationships and isolates people. When evil is at work, you tend to get more and more isolated. Evil whispers despair. It tells you you're worth nothing. It tells you there's nothing you can do. It tells you you're powerless. It whispers despair. It keeps you in the graveyard. Evil binds you, it chains you to destructive patterns. It causes you to repeat things over and over again that you know are causing harm. Evil reduces us, and it causes us to reduce other people from the full complexity of who they are as humans to one thing, the thing that is basest and the thing that is smallest about us. Evil is profoundly reductionistic. We have to know the signs if we're gonna show up, right? Second thing, arm yourself in advance, Um, This is the thought, as I've been preparing for this sermon and and reading through these teachings of Jesus, this is the thing that has gotten in my head and I cannot get it out. When Jesus' followers say, Jesus, teach us how to pray, um, one of the things that Jesus says to them, and and this is the part of the prayer Jesus gives them that I've, I've paid the least attention to in my life. Jesus says to his disciples, pray like this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus says, if you're only gonna pray like three sentences in your life over and over, make this one of the three sentences, right? That's a pretty profound recommendation. And we actually get a story a little later in the Gospel of Luke. um, Right before the death of Jesus, the night before Jesus dies, he's out in this garden. He knows he's about to die and he's desperately praying to be able to do the right thing himself, to not give way to fear, to not give in to evil and fight back. And Jesus is in prayer and he has this conversation with his disciples. Jesus left and made his way to the Mount of Olives as was his custom and the disciples followed him and when he arrived he said to them pray that you won't give in to temptation few verses later Jesus got up from praying and he went to his disciples he found them asleep overcome with grief and he said to them why are you sleeping get up and pray so you won't give in to temptation are you catching a theme here? I mean, what actually happens in this story? The disciples don't get up and pray. The disciples stay asleep, and the result is when evil shows up on the field, the disciples get played like a violin, right? They run in fear, they go and hide, they deny Jesus. They weren't prepared, they didn't arm themselves in advance to resist, and they got totally played from start to finish, just like Jesus told them they would, I mean, evil is not something that Jesus followers have to fear. We don't have to have some kind of special power or formula to resist it. The main thing about resisting evil, the primary thing you have to do, is you have to set your feet in advance. And it's sort of like if you've ever been out in the ocean, like when waves are coming at you, if you set your feet and you're prepared, you got your knees bent a little, you're fine, right? But if you get in that thing and you turn around to talk to someone and you don't say, come on, boom, and there you go. Right? You gotta set your feet in advance. Be proactive. Don't harbor death in any form. Don't give despair a sofa to sit on. Don't invite despair in and be like, come sit down for a while, get comfortable, let me just you know talk it out with you. And don't pick those chains up and ask how long can I carry these chains and can I try them on without them actually hooking. Like, don't play with it. (laughs) Be proactive. Arm yourself in advance. Set your feet and prepare to resist. And when the battle comes, what do you do then? Well, one thing, claim your true identity. Remember that one of the things, one of evil's favorite strategies is to overwrite the thing that you are with its own name and claim of who you are. The best way to combat that is to know who you are to begin with and to speak that identity back against whatever evil is saying. I am a son. I am a daughter of the strong man. I am a son. I am a daughter of the king. You have no power over me. You have no authority in my life. You don't get to define me. I'm more than this. I don't belong in the tombs. What you are saying is not who I am. Uh, Second thing, when, when you're in the midst of that battle, don't just claim your own identity, but call out evil by name. I mean, this is the really amazing thing, I think, about combating evil. There are no tricks, but the thing about evil is that it loses its power almost literally the moment it's exposed. Evil's only real power is secrecy, it's only real power is going unnamed. The minute it's pulled into the light, the minute we say out loud, I know what this is, it's like a monster in the light that just starts shriveling. Call it out. And third thing, if if you find yourself in this battle, by all means, call in reinforcements, right? Like we're always most vulnerable by ourselves. Like, you may not be able to resist fully on your own, but call some people, some followers of Jesus, to stand in that moment with you. And what about fighting for other people? Like, a lot of this goes to for fighting for ourselves, but what about fighting for others? Well, I think the most important thing to say about that is this. When you are fighting evil on behalf of other people, make sure you have identified the right opponent, Make sure that you have distinguished people who you fight for against evil which you fight against. I talk to so many people these days who are so frustrated by other people in their lives. They're frustrated by their neighbors, by their family members, by their friends who just don't get it, who they feel like just must be like truly profoundly bad people or how else could they be doing the things they do and believing the things they believe I totally get that kind of visceral, emotional response, but what we have to keep locked in our head is remember that the world is spiritually alive. Everybody you know is living and playing on a battlefield where there are forces who are working against them, who want them to be deceived, who want relationships to be destroyed. The most important way we can hold compassion for other people is remembering there is a difference between them and the thing that's afflicting them. Most of the world looks around and they say the problem is those people out there, but Christians know better. We might be the only ones who know better. The problem isn't them. The problem is something behind them that is driving to divide and destroy that has the only interest of burning the house down with all of us in it. So when it comes to combating evil, we're not doing the thing yet if all we're doing is spending our time arguing with other people right? There's a place for having an argument, there's a place for discussion, but if all we're doing is arguing with other humans, we're not getting to the root of what's going on. As followers of Jesus, we have the power, we have the capacity to actually address the forces that are confusing and tormenting people. mean, this is why Jesus says, when you get together, you guys pray that you will not be led into temptation, but that you will be delivered from evil, Pray that for yourselves, pray that for each other, battle for each other. You have the power in Jesus' name to put your hands on the chest of darkness and push it back. On your own behalf, on the behalf of other people, to say, in Jesus' name, there is no place for lies here. We have been given that power, not individually so much, but together as a community to actually move that darkness back. The world needs us to play that role because nobody else is going to play it for us. No one else is going to pray that prayer that moves the forces beneath things but us. So as we close this morning, I'm going to invite us into a time of prayer. And what we're going to do in just a second is we're going to pray the prayer Jesus taught us. This short prayer, the Lord's Prayer, if you don't know it, that's just fine. It'll be up behind me so you can look at it. Um, But we're going to pray this prayer, not passively this morning, not sweetly. We're going to pray it as a battle against darkness. So what I want you to do as we come into this prayer, I want us to just sit for a second in silence together, and I want you to picture in your mind, go ahead and close your eyes, and picture in your mind a place or a way that you have seen signs of evil's activity. This might be in your life, it might be the life of someone you love, it might be in the larger world. Where have you seen the signs we described of evil's activity? Dividing, chaining, driving people to their base impulses, driving people to despair, reducing people to the smallest piece of themselves. Where have you seen it? now with the authority that has been given to us as Jesus' disciples, with this image of evil's work in our mind, let's pray these words that Jesus taught us, just imagining ourselves pushing back against that evil, against that darkness. Evil, darkness, in Jesus' name, you have no place here. We see you. We see your lies. We see your intent to divide and destroy. And with the authority given to us by Jesus, we say you can't have us. And you can't have our neighbors either. We pray instead as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation